According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Couldn't get through that. I need to take a breath. <laughs> All right. Proverbs chapter 11 is where our growth comes from, from the scriptures, as always. Proverbs chapter 11. And we are uh, taking verses 16 through 31 as a, a point of study with a bunch of subpoints. Similar to how we handled chapter 10, similar to how we handled some of these earlier chapters. <coughs> Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God to set aside our distractions and humble us under the authority of his truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful once again for the blessing that it is to study your truth. And Father, we thank you that you've provided for us your Holy Spirit who indwells each one of us, who searches all things, even the deep things of God. And thank you that he can take your things and re relate them to us, Father, testifying with our human spirit and uh, taking the truth of your word and making it real to each one of us as we study to show ourselves approved. So, Father, open the eyes of our understanding, give us the ears to hear, and the heart to understand. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, as we've come down to it, uh, point 11 from last week and the week before was dealing with the financial bondage. Here in uh, verse 15, he who is a guarantor for a stranger will surely suffer for it, but he who hates being a guarantor is secure. And uh, principles that were previously developed uh, in the parental wisdom section of uh, Proverbs 6, verses 1 through 5. And uh, kind of interesting how what was first given in the parental wisdom portion is then repeated three different times in the personal and public wisdom portion of the book. Chapter 11 and verse 15, chapter 17 and verse 18, chapter 22 and verse 26. And it's kind of like life, you know, there's a lot of things that that we should have, could have, maybe, and would have learned as, as a child, but didn't. And so then we, we get a chance through remedial doctrine, <laughs> remedial Bible class to learn later in life or as an adult, or in some cases, maybe we weren't even saved until we were adults. And so um, we're kind of behind the curve at that point, just uh, getting caught up uh, on an adult basis. But it's always a blessing when you can uh, instill these principles and these, these doctrines, these promises in uh, the, uh, the younger ages. And so uh, those issues there, uh, <coughs> I'm not going to repeat any of what we taught, but keep in mind, though, these issues are going to come back again. We have some financial uh, aspects uh, when we get down to verse 28, he who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. And so there are money matters that come back again later here in the chapter and uh, things that we've seen before. If you're trusting in money, uh, you got the wrong object to your faith, let me tell you. And uh, uh, scripture is very... Very clear on that. All right, so then we went from there into verses 16 and following. And uh, similar to how we did, like I say, in chapter 10, uh, just observing that there seems to be common themes and, and uh, so forth. And, and really just taking the, the last half of each of these chapters and kind of putting them together in, a, in an outline. Uh, maybe it's not the best way of, of handling it, but this is what we've been doing anyway. Uh, most of these verses uh, in 16 through 31 refer in some way to the rewards of righteous and kind living. 
all right? And it's not just my observation, but actually uh, I stole that quote from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And Walford and Zook uh, also believe uh, that, or uh, actually Sid Bazell is the one that wrote this uh, portion, the Proverbs portion of the, the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Um, so this practical theology, and what I want to stress though is that this practical theology is often counterfeited by those who desire a personal morality apart from the absolute standard of God's Word. And so we read through these verses, and to us, it just jumps out. And and the the verses preach themselves practically, right? Because it's self-evident. It is a truth that we can relate to and resonate with um, in in all of these verses. Um, uh, But then an unbeliever might look at these things and say, well, yeah, I get that. It's better to be nice than ruthless, (laughs) you know? Uh, You want to be kind to one another. And it may be that you have an unbeliever out there that's pursuing, uh, on totally on human viewpoint, pursuing a morality that uh, they think counts for something, right? They think it's, uh, it's just as good as your morality, and they, they might even think it's better than your morality because they have all the good points of morality without uh, the things in your Christianity they don't like, <laughs> okay? So they, uh, you know, all that exclusivism and claims to truth and things like that, they, they don't like that kind of stuff. And so they think they got the best of both worlds, they can follow this kind of human philosophy of, of be nice and, and good and moral and, uh, and, and not have all the ugly things of religion and, and Christianity and, and so forth. Anyway, it is often counterfeited by those who desire personal morality apart from the absolute standard of God's Word. And, and to me, it's, it's, it's interesting whenever I get in a discussion with somebody on this basis, um, <laughs> and if, if they want to talk about it, you know, why? Why? What, what, what drives you to, to pursue this? What, what, what is there in your, in your humanity that uh, seems to desire some kind of a, some kind of a, a, a norm and standard of, of righteousness? <laughs> you know, because they, they won't admit it, you know, but, but they are made in the image of God and they've got a human soul and they've got a conscience and they've got built into their very fabric of their being is this idea of good and evil, right and wrong, and, and, and even those that deny that there are absolute standards, they still live their life as if there are absolute standards, see. And if somebody does them wrong, they're going to be outraged because somebody did them wrong. Well, to be done wrong means there's a standard of righteousness, there's a standard of, of right and wrong. And, and if you've been offended, well, why is that? See, so it's, uh, it is, I think, a, a useful discussion in, uh, in different ways. Gracious and mer- so sub point A then as we look at verses sixteen and seventeen, um, gracious and merciful living, and you see the contrast here in the poetry of verses sixteen and seventeen and the items that are placed in uh, in parallel. A gracious woman attains to honor, and ruthless men attain riches. The merciful man does himself good, but the cruel man does himself harm. And so we have really a couple of different ways that we can structure this poetry and then what the, what the Hebrew does in this. We've got the contrast and with gracious and merciful on the one hand, right? The gracious woman in 16a and the merciful man in 17a versus the uh, ruthless and the cruel. That would be uh, 16b and 17b. And so when it comes to uh, what is enriching, you know, the ruthless man attains riches, and yeah, you know, it's a doggy dog world and the ruthless man, you know, the uh, whatever Gordon Gecko, the world likes to mock the capitalists and the, the ruthless businessmen and whatever and, and all of that. 
And, uh, and yeah, the Scrooge McDuck can, uh, can accumulate all his wealth. Um, I like him better than Ebenezer Scrooge. That's just my Disney appreciation on Scrooge McDuck. But, um, okay, fine. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I guess, uh, Dickens is more distinguished than, than Disney, um, related to that. But, you know, if you want to be a total Scrooge and, and a miser and, and just a complete worldly focus on, on riches and wealth, you can't accumulate that, especially in a, in a culture as prosperous as ours, see. But what have you accumulated? The real enrichment comes through wisdom, and it comes as you attain honor, as you do yourself good, okay? The merciful man does himself good. Because it is more blessed to give than to receive. And the, the benefit to your soul as you apply the word of God, as you serve others, as you walk in wisdom, you are profiting abundantly day by day by day. And it is a, a glorious thing to consider. Um, so we have the Proverbs here that we were looking at, as well as um, Psalm 41 and Matthew 5. Um, we want to uh, we want to uh, be the merciful man, right? Blessed are the merciful. Why? They shall inherit the earth. This is the the blessing as we as we pursue this. Um, we looked at these last week. I don't think we have to spend a lot of time on this, but Psalm forty one I like. <coughs> How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. See, there's a benefit to being gracious, to being merciful, to consider the helpless. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive, and he shall be called blessed upon the earth, and do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. If you're the the tool that's uh, the conduit through whom God's mercy flows through you to benefit someone else, then you're the one that that is benefited. You're the one that's blessed in uh, in that application. All right. From there, we uh, take a look at verses uh, 18 and 19. What subpoint did we get to last week before I gave up on my voice? That one right there? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, then, good. We're caught up. <laughs> we looked at all those. Yeah, we looked at Matthew 5. We looked at Matthew 25. We looked at the, uh, the sheep and goat judgment and that standard of mercy. Yes, it's an eschatological passage, and I don't want to get lost in the eschatology of it, but simply beyond that, uh, to, to note that you, you, you see somebody naked, you see somebody hungry, you see somebody, you know, you observe that this is a need, and then you have in yourself, you know, like I say, the conduit as God's mercy flows through you, but you have the, the heart desire then to be the, the tool in God's hands, to be able to uh, express the mercy in that way is, uh, is, a, is, a, is a good thing. So that's there in, in Matthew 25. <laughs> but then the standard in Luke 6, to be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. That's the standard. To be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. So if you've got some kind of a finite level, <laughs> some kind of a finite mark where you say, all right, here's my line in the sand and that far and no further, right? I'm not going to go past this. So if you have a finite limit to your mercy, uh, then you are not merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful because because uh, he has no limit in his infinite mercy, in his infinite grace. And it's along the lines of uh, as perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, as ho- be, be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. And all of these expectations that are placed upon us in the church age, the, the benchmark is God. 
<laughs> that's a that's a high benchmark, right? We're all growing to that to that benchmark, to that to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. And anything short of that uh, misses the mark; it falls short of uh, of that standard. And so that um, that's a, that's a humbling thing, right there. All right. Then uh, more contrast here in uh, verse eighteen. And, and really, we're going to take verse 18 and 19 as a unit now. Uh, the wicked earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. It's a good contrast of true, not as opposed to true false, but true as opposed to true and a shadow or true or something that's just, that's not um, not that, <laughs> okay? And we'll illustrate with other other principles there too. Uh, verse uh, 19, he who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life, but he who pursues evil will bring about his own death. And so when we talk about the, what, what do we sow and what do we reap, uh, you, they couldn't be more different. They couldn't be more different in time and in eternity. They couldn't be more different in the temporal expressions of these things as well as the ultimate outcomes of these things. So subpoint B then, the sowing and reaping of the wicked and the righteous couldn't be more different. Verse 18 and verse 19. And then I like the fact that it uses the sowing language. It's, it's common to the Old Testament, common to the New Testament, the idea of what you're sowing and what you're reaping, what you're planting and the harvest that then comes up. And it's, uh, it is a, a principle that actually spans every dispensation. It spans... Uh, angelity and humanity alike it's it it is a it's a universal truth that applies to the moral realm of god's creation the fact that god designed us with volition angels and humans alike with volition and we choose we choose who we serve and we choose obedience or disobedience and we choose to to honor god or or defy him and we reap the consequences of our choices and that's the the aspect of it. And in some respects, this is, this is no different than God himself. God has to himself, uh, in his own sowing and in his own reaping, God himself uh, makes choices and God himself accepts the consequences of his own choices. And uh, this is true of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to consider if you're going to be a moral uh, being in this, uh, uh, in this, uh, in this universe. So uh, here's the language of it. Here's what you earn based upon what you've sown. And uh, wages, remember, are what you've earned. It's the, it's the payback. It's what's due to you on the basis of what you have done. And you have done a certain amount of work. You, are, uh, you have a certain uh, salary that is due to you in, uh, in these things. All right. Um, so, again, that's verse 18. You've got uh, earning with deceptive wages. You've got sowing with a true reward. A true reward. That is, uh, I think, above and beyond anything of a wage because God gives all kinds of bonuses. <laughs> God gives beyond what we could ask or think. God gives and gives and gives again in, uh, in what we do as we sow righteousness. And then the aspect of life and death. Uh, we can we can view verse 19 in a couple of ways as well. We can view verse 19 related to <coughs> related to um, 
life and death matters that are that are still temporal, that are still while we're on this earth. Don't think about you know living uh, and, and not dying versus dying in uh, in those things. We're talking about that abundant life that we have in Christ, see, or the operational death that we have and darkness and carnality and everything else. All right. Um, are we all right? Can I continue? Okay. Let's look at some of these other uh, Proverbs that I think go along with this, plus some other passages as it relates. Um, Proverbs 22, 8. Proverbs 22 and verse 8. He who sows iniquity will reap vanity. Remember, that's the Hebrew Old Testament vanity of emptiness. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Um, and the rod of his fury will perish. You know, and the, the longer you stay in this, the longer you continue. Have you noticed this? Um, you, you keep sowing, you keep sowing, you keep reaping, you keep reaping. And, uh, and it just it's, it's empty, 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 empty. And the longer you keep spinning your wheels and getting more and more frustrated, you get more and more angry. <laughs> and it just feeds itself. Colonel Thiem would teach the, the frantic inveterate search for happiness. And the longer you do it, the more frantic you get. And the more you keep searching for happiness, the, the, the further away it seems to be. And you just get more and more angry. And so the rod of his fury is just, uh, you know, you can imagine the, the, the temper tantrum that you keep throwing when, you, when you're not getting what you are hoping to get. The rod of his fury will perish. Hosea 10. Hosea. When do we get to Hosea? All right, Daniel Hosea, the first of the minor prophets. He's got like 14 chapters, doesn't he? Why do we call him a minor prophet? Um... Or at least 13 chapters. No, he's got 14. All right. Hosea 10, verses 12 and 13. And you'll note, these are well-known verses, but they, uh, um, <coughs> I think we know them better because they get referenced in the New Testament. Or, um, Oh, no, maybe I'm thinking of something else. All right, Hosea 10, verse 12 and verse 13. Verse 12 says, So with a view to righteousness... Reap in accord with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until He comes uh, to rain righteousness on you. All right? And what's really neat about this is, is, yes, it's the doctrine of sowing and reaping, but along with that comes the idea that, um, that, that you don't retire. You don't stop. You don't grow content to say, well, that's enough. You know, that, well, I've, I've, okay, I've paid my dues. I've done my time. I've sown, I've reaped, I'm content with what I've done. And so what happens then, you know, you gather your harvest into the barns and you gloat about how full your barns are and how great everything is. But then you, you end up with fallow ground. You end up, your field, uh, your field goes fallow for a year or two years or three years or how long does it go? And, uh, and so it continues here and it says, no, break that ground up. Break up that fallow ground. There's, there's another season now. Keep sowing. Don't stop. Keep sowing. See? For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. 
because you have trusted in your way, in your numerous warriors. So anyway, the, the passage here, I think, uses this agricultural uh, metaphor. I mean, it uses this, this illustration, I think, to make these things very clear. That when it comes down to it, are we really just in a, in a neutral is it, is it true that we can just kind of be in a, in a neutral mode where we're neither pursuing righteousness nor pursuing wickedness? I don't think so. I think if we're not doing this, then we're doing that, all right? If we're not, if we're not uh, serving the Lord, then by default, even if we think we're just cruising, we're not. When you fall away from the faith, you are actually serving the adversary, and that's, uh, I think that's clear. All right. Uh, Galatians, of course. We were there not long ago. Galatians 6, verse 8 and verse 9. God is not mocked. You do reap what you sow. Spent a bit of time on this in the recently finished Galatians series. I don't know when we'll get a disc made up that'll have the PDF notes and it'll have all the audio files on it, but any event... Uh, Galatians 6, verse 8 says, or verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. That's a present tense. He is not. Never has been, never will be. We think we're mocking him, but he is not mocked. We might do the mocking in the active voice, but he's not being mocked in the passive voice. Okay? He is uh, so much beyond us. All the mocking we do uh, fails to mock him in the in the passive voice for whatever a man sows this he will also reap this he will also reap and this is what happens as we sow we can expect the consequence we make choices we face consequences for the one to his uh, who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption and this is uh you know this is the ongoing damage that's done it's more than just okay i committed a sin uh, I'll confess it, I'll be restored to fellowship, and then, hey, we're great. Well, no, wait a minute. In the meantime, you think it's a get-out-of-jail-free card with no consequences whatsoever? There is a reaping that takes place. And so I'm not, I'm not telling you to not confess. Yes, you want to confess. But understand, in the meantime, and understand that even with the confession, there, there continues to be a reaping of the harvest. And the one who sows to the... Uh, so reaping corruption reaping corruption and we shouldn't be reaping corruption because that's not why he saved us that's he, he delivered us out of that domain of darkness and yet we're going to reap that corruption here in time experientially in uh, the discipline that, that follows but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life and that's not going to heaven when you die that's right now today in the experience of eternal life having that 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 reality of eternal life shape our thinking shape our actions that reality of eternal life that is manifest, we get to reap that here and now. See? And uh, hopefully in that, the reaping of that, it's, it's, it's very alive and powerful. It's very real for each one of us. You know? <coughs> and in some cases, <coughs> maybe allergy season's the best time to illustrate this. <laughs> I, I don't know. <coughs> in some cases, you have something but you're not always as vividly aware of it, right? I have a cedar allergy, but most months of the year, I'm not really that aware of it until January, right? And, and, and I still, I have, 
a cedar allergy and it's just this is the season where i'm much more aware of it than other times of the year okay and, and consider now that that principle with respect to our eternal life because we all have eternal life but my suspicion is is that there are significant stretches of time in our christian walk even though we have eternal life we're not really that much aware of it we're really not 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 face to face with it or encountering it or thinking much about it or or we're certainly not uh embracing it fully we're not thriving in that eternal life we're not laying hold of that eternal life you know we have it but it's you know it's in a back pocket somewhere it's shoved in a drawer somewhere it's off it's out of sight out of mind you know i still have it because i can never get rid of it but i don't really pay much attention to it it's in a box on a shelf in a closet upstairs um under a tarp (laughs) you know i mean so i still have it you see what i'm saying and so laying hold, reaping eternal life, laying hold of eternal life, to lay hold of that eternal life to which also we are called, reaping eternal life. And I think uh, it, it focuses on, on what we have and what we, what we uh, embrace and what we, um, what we center on in our thinking. Verse 9 of Galatians 6, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. And I think that goes back to that Hosea text we were just looking at with fallow ground, okay? You've been sowing, you've been reaping, you've been sowing, you've been reaping, and then you got tired of it. And then you just kind of stopped. And, and so you're, you're, the ground of righteousness went fallow because you were so busy over here sowing and reaping in the, in, in the other ground, in the ground of darkness, in the ground of wickedness, and in that, in that uh, application. Finally, then James... James 3.18. Remember, James is the New Testament Proverbs. (laughs) Okay? Wisdom literature for the church age. Wisdom literature for the body of Christ with the fully revealed mystery doctrine. The seed whose fruit, and this is the conclusion to the one of my favorite texts anywhere in the Bible is this contrast between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. And, of course, God calls the world's wisdom foolishness. But, but they are different wisdom sources, and they have their, their own power. They have their own fruit. And uh, we want to avoid the world's wisdom so we can be embracing God's wisdom. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And there we have it. Here's a marvelous New Testament text that serves as a great um, cross-reference, a great parallel to uh, Proverbs 11 and verses 18 and 19. All right. So what are we going to sow? What are we going to reap? How are we going to operate in the plan of God? in uh, in this all right back to proverbs 11 um verse 20 the pervert <laughs> okay the perverse in heart are an abomination to the lord 
but the blameless in their walk are his delight. I'm going to handle verse 20 by itself. No, let's put verse 21 with it. Assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished, but the descendants of the righteous will be delivered. All right, so taking verses 20 and 21 and pairing them up. Uh, We're talking about heart attitudes and how those heart attitudes are expressed. Uh, Is the heart perverted or is the heart blameless? Then the walk will be expressed, okay? Because the perverted heart does perverted things. Perverts do perverted things. But the blameless in their walk, how do they walk? Well, as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is, so he does. Thinking always precedes the doing, right? And so uh, when we have... (coughs) The poetry here that's contrasting perverted with blameless, that's uh, contrasting abomination with delight. Remember what we studied on that? The abomination is is what you're pushing far away from you. Okay? The delight is what? Is what you're hugging? Is what you're drawing near? A delight is something tender, something precious, something that you, you embrace, that you hug near. Okay? Jesus was daily his father's delight. We want to be our father's delight. And so, to me, the, the expressions here are, are, are vivid. I love them. And, and they're simple. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's heartbreaking how the, the world these days is, is totally removing all this beautiful language like pervert. It's a great language because it describes the antithesis of blameless. It describes the abomination for what it is and uh, the opposition of what it is that God delights in, what he embraces in. And, uh, and, and so when, we, when, when our culture then starts excusing sin and starts making everything acceptable because, well, God loves everybody, they are, they are in open defiance of, w- of what God abhors and what God delights in and what's an abomination to God and what is a, a delight to God. And, uh, well, we'll be into you when you call good evil and evil good. Um, that's uh, the consequences our generation is going to face. <clears throat> assuredly the evil man will not go unpunished and uh where are his offspring by the way uh but the descendants of the righteous will be delivered and the benefit that can happen the the blessings by association that can happen not only in your generation but to your children to your children's children the blessings by association that can happen in the generations that follow uh, for the sake of the godliness of, of generations gone by. You know, Solomon reaped an awful lot of blessings because David was his father. And, and, and Scripture tells us that. Scripture says, I'm not going to divide this kingdom until your children's generation for the sake of David, your father. Even though Solomon himself was a, you know, died the sin unto death as a total failure at the end. But the, the, the civil war didn't strike until the days of Rehoboam. For the sake of David, your father. And, and to me, that's a that's a powerful benefit right there. So point C, a point of study related to this. The heart drives the walk. The heart drives the walk. And it sparks either abomination or delight to the Lord. <coughs> the heart drives the walk. And it sparks either abomination or delight to the Lord. Now, this is the clear language of Scripture, and some people don't like this, all right? They don't want to view anything we do as having any stimulate, you know, stimulating factor that God then responds to. 
because because they have this concept of God that is so transcendent and so beyond and so immutable and so everything that that he never has he's never affected by what we do all right and in and, and because of of this theological view that they hold they end up rewriting so much of scripture see as if we can't make god happy we can't make god angry we can't make god um whatever but but the plain language of scripture uses these expressions now admittedly they're anthropopathisms they are human expressions applied to god in a way that communicates to us so to whatever extent that the expression reflects truth it is true so god is angry god does love god does embrace he takes delight he is abhorrent see depending on the object of what is what he's looking at and just because god responds to the stimulus does not violate immutability right it doesn't change who he eternally is he is still in his nature, in his essence, in his personality, in his character, in his attributes. He is still God, very God, the I am, always has been, always will be. Regardless of, of how in the unfolding of his uh, relationship to us, uh, he, may, he may experience uh, anger, he may experience joy, he may experience delight, he may experience uh, a, a fellowship, with us see anyway i'm glad to i'm glad to reach this verse this morning because we, we dealt with this uh in in systematic theology geisler addressed this quite a bit and and now i'm trying to remember whether he held the view we agreed with or the view we disagreed with because um i think it's a i think it's it's an inaccurate definition of immutability all right, an inaccurate definition of immutability. See, um, by by viewing, and I think it takes human experiences and then impresses it back to God, which that's not fair. But but then to to deny the whole thing. So here, here's what I'm saying. Okay, um, back to these verses here about the perverse in heart are an abomination, but the blameless are a delight. Evil men will not go unpunished. Okay, so. So uh, as far as things that affect us, stimuli, uh, sti- stimuli that we interact with, stimuli that we respond to, okay? Uh, if, if there's something that makes me happy, does that change who I am? Okay? Or is there something that, that embitters me? Does that change who I am? Well, if I let it, it can change who I am. But do I have to let it? And if I do let it change who I am, is that on me? Okay? So, so something embitters me, and it embitters me again, and it embitters me again, and I, I keep letting it embitter me for a year, ten years, whatever, okay? Clearly, at the end of that whole process, through whatever, whatever it might be, and there's illustrations, you know, you've got whatever, um, a drunk, this is not my, sto- my story, but someone who grew up in the home with a drunk father, and and they're they're abused and they're beaten and they're and all of that all of that affects them it changes them of course because we're changeable beings 
right? So they experience the emotion, they experience the emotion, and, and it affects them and they're changed, okay? But can, that illustration, though, can we impose that back on God? Obviously not, because God is immutable. He changes not. In his self-contained, in his existence, in his I am, in his perfection, in his glory, he cannot change, see? But where I think the fallacy comes in, it's, it's, a, it's a logical uh, fallacy in taking the analogy to us, what's analogous to us, and trying to put it back on God, see? Because God's not going to be affected you know, with a permanent affected, affectedness that changes who he is. So I can still stimulate him to love. I can stimulate him to anger. I can stimulate him to wrath. I can stimulate him to, to abomination or to embracing or any of this. And, and, and what I do can affect him. That's, that's key. It does affect him. But it does not change him. Okay? And, and if, if we're willing to accept that an effect is not a change then I think we can have a biblical definition of how God relates to his, his children, how God relates to each one of us. Okay? And I think, and I understand, that the folks that really want to have this transcendent and really put it to, those, to that extreme, that God is never affected by anything. I, I get that. I just would hope that they would maybe um, think in a broader way all right? That they would allow for their God to be affected. Because if he's not affected, I, I would submit that he has no affections. But our God does have affections. He is an affectionate God. And, and, and he expresses those affections, clearly. So, um, let's not, uh, and maybe this is <laughs> a bigger message than I should have uh, addressed here this morning. All right? <clears throat> because clearly he does respond. He responds to our prayers. And, and Scripture says that. Because you prayed this, I won't do that. It is a stimulus. It is a cause and effect. And, and the cause is our prayers. The effect is God taking plan B instead of plan A. Right? And in, even though in his foreknowledge and his omniscience he knew it was going to happen before the foundation of the world, he still says... You did this, so I'm doing this in a cause and effect way. That's, uh, that's an important study also. All right. So, uh, the heart drives the walk, sparks either abomination or delight to the Lord. Um, and this is a good thing, too, because uh, <laughs> without Christ, our heart is, is, is wicked, right? The fallen heart, the heart in Adam, oh my. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. We all know Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Right? The heart is, uh, did I misquote that? That's probably King James or something old and long ago. This was the theme of, of a VBS when I was 8 years old, I think, or 10 years old, something. Um, would have been 1978 or 1979. Okay. <clears throat> the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? None of us, clearly. The rhetorical question, God is the only one that searches the hearts and the minds. 
I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. All right? Not, yes, your, your, your deeds, but your deeds happen because of your ways. And your ways happen because of your heart. So take each one of those steps and realize God's the one who searches the heart. He tests the mind. And we're accountable. We're absolutely accountable. And uh, he will either love what he sees or he's going to hate what he sees and he's going to respond accordingly in the consequences of that. Matthew 12, Jesus said this. It's not what you put into your body. It's, it's, it's the heart. Although if you eat sushi, I would, I would wonder. All right, Matthew 12. You know who? <laughs> yeah, where'd that come from? That was a Facebook thing yesterday that I was teasing somebody about. And they said, well, didn't your mom eat sushi? Yeah, and she died. What, am I, what, are, you, what are you trying to say? <laughs> All right. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. Okay, this is where we get the word thesaurus. This is your treasury. The Greek word here is your treasury. It's your thesaurus. Okay, and you can keep bringing out good thing after good thing after good thing if your heart is good. But if your heart is wicked, what are you going to be bringing out? Bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. And I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for in the day of judgment. Ooh, that's convicting. All right, probably shouldn't have read that. Should have stopped at verse 35. (laughs) All right, well, no, I read it. I said it. I'm accountable. Let's live that way. Uh, Matthew 15, same gospel, a few chapters later. Matthew 15. Of course, the Pharisees are all indignant uh, (coughs) because different uh, cleansing procedures aren't being followed and um, they're, they're eating with unwashed hands and like the Pharisees or Levitical priests or something. Um, but he says here in verses 18 through 20, uh, or do you not understand everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach is eliminated, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. All right? Yes, there is a ceremonial purity that the Levites and the priests uh, observed and they, they followed as a part of their, uh, part of their uh, ceremonial function in the uh, priesthood for Israel. But it has nothing to do with, with uh, the personal carnality that, uh, that every believer has to deal with in, uh, in those things. Okay? This too, I'm going to answer tonight. There was a question that came in. How do I know if it's Satan whispering things to me or if it's my own carnality uh, whispering things to me and, or influencing, promoting, tempting me to sin and so forth? How do I know if it's, you know, if it's, if it's external coming from the devil or if it's internal coming from my, from my sin nature? Okay? Well, this passage here says quite a bit of it comes from your own heart, <laughs> you know, and I suspect the majority of it comes from your own heart, that uh, the, the vast majority of it comes from your own heart. There's enough of it there that, 
Satan really doesn't need to add much to it beyond that. But, you know, and then functionally, maybe you won't know. You know, and does it really matter? You want to ignore both of them anyway, so, you know, who cares? <laughs> anyway, that'll come up tonight in our question and answer time. Uh, now, the whole idea of the heart <clears throat> driving the walk, um, that's kind of a scary thing given the fact that all our hearts are pretty wicked. Okay, all of us, fallen creatures in Adam. Well, the good news is, the good news is, is we get a new heart in Christ. And so being saved ones, still in a fallen body, wh- where are we now? Now we're stuck with, with two natures. Now we're stuck with two hearts, as it were, that old heart and then the new heart. Okay? And we obviously we want to operate on the basis of the new heart, the one that's constantly being renewed, the one that's constantly being made new. We don't want to go back to that old heart or the old man as, as, uh, as it is. So for the unregenerate heart in Adam, it's all, it's, it's grim. It's bad news after bad news after bad news. But for the new heart in Christ, it is a grace blessing. It is a grace blessing for the new heart in Christ. Now keep in mind, this first passage is not in Christ. From Psalm 24 and Psalm 51, those are Old Testament passages. The, 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 the new nature, the being born again, the being regenerate is not limited to the, to the uh, body of Christ in the church age. Okay? And so I think we need to rightly divide the, the position possessions for what do we get as church age believers and then what did they get as Old Testament saints and, 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 and be careful not to move too much into the church category and remove it from the Old Testament saints because they had, they had salvation too. They had eternal life. They had a new heart. They just weren't baptized in the union with Jesus Christ like we were. They weren't uh, fellow heirs with the Son as we are. Um, they didn't have the sealing and the anointing and all the everything we have in the, in the church age as far as the, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is concerned, they didn't have that. But they still had a living human spirit. They still had eternal life. They still had a clean heart. All these things uh, are in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. So Psalm 24, 4. Psalm 24, 4. <clears throat> Uh, verse 3, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? Okay, those are rhetorical questions and, and we can answer them or we can allow the psalmist to answer them in the next verse. But rhetorically, nobody, right? None of us measure up. None of us have the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the, the, um, the, the, the mercy of God or, or, or that. Um, who has, he who has clean hands and a pure heart? I know a pastor that preached on that once upon a time. All right. Now keep in mind, this he who, first of all, starts where? The prime, the prime he who of this prophecy is messianic. It's Christ. The, the primary application here is, is, is the he who is what Jesus Christ accomplishes that none of the rest of us could possibly accomplish in ourselves. But then on the basis of that, can we come back and look at this he who and then apply it to a born-again believer? Of course. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. And so Jesus Christ is the one that achieves this himself, never sins, never fails, um, glorifies his Father in all that he does. He himself has earned and deserved what he's earned and deserved, everything. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his 
salvation. Well, does he need salvation at that point? <laughs> okay. And so we, we understand this is applying to the Messiah, but then through him, it's applying to every single one of us. Because the God of our salvation is giving us his righteousness. His righteousness is imputed to our account. His clean hands, his pure heart, his character, it's all imputed to us. We receive a blessing from the Lord, righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Okay? As opposed to the generation that does not seek him, the generation that despised him, that put him to death, the generation uh, to whom the, the stroke was due. <laughs> They, uh, they crucified the, the Lamb. All right, so it's a beautiful text. It's an Old Testament text. I think it's, it's, it's a, a passage that addresses Old Testament soteriology in a very beautiful way that, um, that clearly Jesus uh, and Nicodemus could have incorporated in their conversation. As Jesus said, you must be born again and shocked that Nicodemus was clueless as to the, the necessity of that. All right, Psalm 51.10. And so this is uh, a reality both positionally and experientially. I take Psalm 24 positionally and Psalm 51 experientially. He gives us the new heart when we're saved and He puts righteousness to our account, but He keeps washing us and, give, and cleansing our, our clean heart uh, in, as we confess our sins. Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Is this David getting saved? No, David's already saved. This is David confessing his sin uh, with the adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And um, as he's confessing this here, Behold, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. It's back to verse 4. You know, when you see this, this whole psalm here is his confession. And, and there's, there's no goat for this. There's no, there's no bull, goat, sheep. There's no animal ritual. The, the, Leviticus does not help David in, in, this, in this episode of his life. Because Leviticus stones him. Stones him as an adulterer. Stones him as a murderer. Leviticus does not help him. There is no sacrifice for, these, for, for, for this willful defiance sin. All he can do is come to God in repentance with... A, with a, his heart here. So uh, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This is what happens when we have prolonged carnality and the Holy Spirit convicts and convicts and convicts. Against you, you only have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. He's going to reap a whirlwind, and he knows it. And God is absolutely right and absolutely just in every consequence he faces here. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, And this is the total depravity of man. We're born in, in this sin. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. As he cycles the word of God, as he's transformed by the word of God, he needs truth in the innermost being. Purify me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He needs a, a soul cleansing. This is why he's confessing. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, 
First John 1 9 wasn't written yet, but Old Testament believers had it too. Old Testament believers still committed, uh, you know, accomplished rebound. They still confessed their sins. And it was still done through prayer. And they didn't need to sacrifice an animal. See, don't confuse the ceremonial with the real. <laughs> you think they butchered a goat every single time they rebounded? Are you kidding me? There's not enough goats under the sun. Okay. The, the, the ritual was done on the ritual basis for the ritual seasons and, 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 uh, and so forth. All right. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. You know, this is where you can take your divine discipline and thank God for it. Yeah, it's a broken bone, but thank you. Could have been worse. And, uh, and I'm going to learn from this. And it hurts. Of course it hurts. But he's going to, the bones will knit. I'll heal. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You know, when you're coming out of that season of darkness, um, you're going to have some, some, some diminished capacity. Uh, the soul is going to be injured in the meantime. It's going to be malnourished. It's going to be uh, weak. Volition's going to be impacted. You're not going to have the steadfast spirit you used to have. You know, it's like anything. If, if, you, if you quit doing it, you've lost your endurance for it. You know, yeah, you used to be a marathon runner, but you haven't run in 10 years. You're going to have to build up to that again, build up to that again, build up to that again. And in the meantime, it's, you know, volitionally. That's why I think he gives God his own volition here. It says, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Take over here, God. Give me that steadfastness. I don't really have it at the moment, but you can renew it. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. We don't have to worry about that because we're New Testament saints, but an Old Testament saint could lose the Holy Spirit. Uh, Very few Old Testament saints even had the Holy Spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. See? Again, he's surrendering his volition. Not my will, but thine be done. Give me the positive volition. Work in me to will and to do of your good pleasure. Sustain me with a willing spirit. He's asking God to provide the positive volition that he may not exactly have uh, to, to much of a degree here and now. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. And so you see there's the wages of sin and then there's additional consequences here called the blood guiltiness. Additional consequences and some of these are taken care of. That's why we have, in theological terms, we have distinctions between propitiation and expiation and some of these other terms. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. You know, the sinner that is restored can praise in a powerful way. And God is pleased in that. Absolutely pleased in that. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Ritual will not save David on this day, but reality does. Reality does. And he confesses. And and the prophet Nathan says, you will not die. That's how close he was to the sin and the death when you read it in 2 Samuel chapter 11. All right. 
And so there's the, uh, the principle there. We get this new heart. And he creates it new. He creates it clean. It's, it's true positionally when we're saved, but it's also true experientially. Every time we confess our sins, he restores us to fellowship. He forgives us our sins. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He's creating that clean heart anew every time. All right, Matthew 5, 8. This is the pure in heart, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, how do you get that if the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked? God gives that to you. Positionally righteous, with your, you are pure of heart. And then finally, Acts 15, 9. They finally decided that uh, this church age was something new and something different, and it, uh, God made no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And um, as uh, Peter and Paul and Barnabas and all the apostles are testifying to the, the gospel and the impact it's having among Gentiles, and uh, verse 7, this is... Uh, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, see, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith, same as he did with us. Therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have ever been able to bear. You're going to put those Gentiles under law? How stupid is that? All right. And if uh, Peter had had that attitude, he, uh, uh, when he arrived in Antioch, they wouldn't have had the confrontation that they had. See, that's why we have the earlier date for Galatians there and the story there in, in Galatians chapter 2. Peter hadn't reached this point yet. He's, clearly he's there now. All right, so we get the new heart. Next week, we'll come back. We'll talk about inner beauty and outer beauty because outer beauty without inner beauty is a tragic waste of outer beauty. (laughs) How sad. Man, to have all that physical beauty. What a waste. It's like the gold ring and the pig snout, okay? And it's uh, it's, it's sad. And it's uh, it's every every Hollywood award show you want to watch, right? It's It's all of the... It's all of the the world we live in is totally uh, centered on physical attraction, uh, attractions and physical beauty. So we'll deal with that next week, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your truth. Father, thank you for the deep things of Scripture and for bringing them to our attention and, and opening our eyes to be able to expand some of our uh, appreciation for who you are and how you operate. Thank you for the blessings of wisdom. Thank you for creating in us the clean heart that you do. Uh, Not only when we got saved, but then again and again and again, every time you cleanse us from unrighteousness and forgive us from our trespasses. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.